Welcome back to Park Media Interlude, Vince and Sergio. It is Tuesday, October 27th. 27th, I believe. Yeah, I think so. A few days away. Fucking A. Serge has been hard at work downstairs in the park space working on his documentary, which he started filming in 2015. No shit. It's been five years. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I'm super pumped about that. What are you doing down here, Serge? I'm extremely pumped about it. Wow. Uh, for, not, for the time being, because the work hasn't kicked in yet. How so. many hours of footage do you have? I got probably around around 250, maybe 300 hours of everything. Interviews, and regular now, footage. Now the goal is to cut that down to what? 90 minutes? 90 minutes. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> 200 hours yeah. down to 90 minutes. So. So that's what you what that's what you're down here doing. Yeah, so the I mean it's the the part of the process. So initially it's obviously when you're planning, when you're filming and when you're reviewing the footage just the euphoric stage of it. And then once you identify your theme, so I'm going through each character and I'm de- identifying all the themes within each character. Then I'm going to put all those themes together, see the ones that overlap and ones that don't, and then basically fit it into the into the line of themes. And then and then you start basically uh, cutting, uh, making sequences, and then seeing how those sequences fit. And that's more of a... So once you get into this editing part, cuts, and putting sequences together, that's more of like a technical and the skill based thing so there's no that's that's like basically the most stressful part so i'm still in the euphoric part <laughs> yeah and it, it's not like you uh it's not like you went to school for this no i have not yourself taught for sure um well just like majority of people nowadays i mean you see some incredible work i mean just from the cell phones stuff that people are able to make it's just really incredible yeah so it's a you know, it's what Coppola said that first, you know, filmmaking was like a technical, skillful job. Now it's since what he said, eight millimeter was available to people. Now it's more of an art form. Yeah. Which was interesting. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. He has a very proletarian yeah. view of how it is. Uh, film should be very egalitarian thought about. Yeah. Egalitarian. Because it's true because then you kind of because if you know. <laughs> if you you know tell somebody oh you didn't go to school or you didn't do this and therefore you're not a filmmaker or whatever you been that's you know that's kind of it's not a good thing yeah the tough thing well i think well how do i say this in the age of covid i guess what can you say you can make independent film put it on your website put it on social media get it out to your audience and you know try hopefully that it, it spreads i guess the only difference is the part that sucks is that you're unable to have that kind of, uh, you know, the cool collective experience you have going to a place and, you know, sitting down and there's 30, 40, 100, 150, depending on the theater size, you watching a movie together and then you get to do like a and a after and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So, but yeah, no, it is, it is cool because these days you do have the ability to just put it out. I mean, I would like to see more people doing that. I mean, I think when we would hold documentary film screenings at park, I think the ideal situation would be to have local filmmakers come in, bring their own movies, films, whatever it may be, shorts, feature length, 
and uh, screen them here, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, this is the, to get this across um, to, to people, I think is really important because it's like all too often we're consuming all of this culture. I mean, and one of the, the things I think we should take away from the sixties generation. Um, I know that the, I know it's very popular on the left to bash the sixties now, but I am going to hold out. And because I reading about those, that counterculture is what got me thinking about things. And so I always have a soft spot for that stuff. But, you know, I think that attitude to take that away from that. And then, um, cultural movements after that, you know, like, uh, or even before that, like the Dadaists, yep. Cubists, the Cubists. Yeah. Um, the surrealist to some yep. degree, definitely the existentialist, but there's all kinds of art movements where it's like p- the people, you know, are like from the ground up making this art and taking it out of the museums and the highfalutin galleries and the, you know, professional ivory towers and bringing it down to the people. But at the same time, it's tough because if you get some of that institutional recognition, it, it allows your work to go so much further. Which you can do. I mean, then that's the thing. That's why you have film institutes. That's why you have film festivals and usually have institutes and in certain film festivals like Keynes, they have their own institute. Uh, Sundance, they have their own institute. So you can send your... I mean, they love finished products because then that means less money for them to spend doing the editing and all that stuff and more concentrating on production, uh, producing. That. And um, yeah, and then, uh, but you can still send. There's a lot of places, all, all kinds of film festivals that you can send and they're still going to hold it. It's going to be online, obviously, which is whatever. But nonetheless, I mean, that's once you you know, get there, they're going to be able to support you in terms of financially and professionally and help you to get your uh, film out if they like it, obviously. Right. All right. Well, I I ask you these questions officially (laughs) on air because people might assume that just because Sergio and I live together that we are, and it's, that's not actually true. I mean, I think if people have been to the space there's two apartments upstairs and so there's actually two separate apartment rooms and buildings and bathrooms and all that so space downstairs plus the space downstairs and lately Sergio has been down here uh like a mad scientist you know just doing his thing so tool space I'm able to uh yeah able to check in with him and ask him questions because I don't get to uh well, I do. I guess no, I could. But in the I mean, evening, we usually be better to ask now during the congregate show. for meals. So, how about <laughs> we? I, I was talking with. Well, no, I was talking with uh, Brandon called this afternoon. A friend of ours, Brandon, and he had mentioned how much he loved the Borat movie, the new one. Yeah. And yeah. Sergio and I watched it, and we laughed <laughs> our asses off. I mean, cried. Yeah, cried, cried. Belly laughing for like ninety <laughs> minutes. I mean, there were some parts, of course, that I didn't you know, think was hilarious, but like, it was like a nine out of 10. It was like a, um, you know, I give it an a nine out of 10, four stars, all that stuff. I mean, two thumbs up. It's like, it's so funny. It was awesome. And I don't understand how people could hate on it. I mean, some of the critiques I saw of it were really silly, uh, which actually is a great segue into the next thing that I know we wanted to talk about today. But getting back to the positive elements of the movie, it's fucking hilarious. You should watch it. I want to watch it a second time. And, uh, and I, I think the guy's brilliant, you know? He is. And I just, no, I mean, first off, I would definitely call it a 
highly intellectual film, extremely intellectual film. Number one, the approach to it. Uh, number two, the comparisons. I mean, I don't know. I mean, for me, that was funny because he kind of, he points out all the, uh, these uh, Western, um, what's the term for it? Ideas of what those cultures are. And he takes that, those aspects elements and he brings them here and he shows that here it might be a little bit different but the things are the same you know mm -hmm. that's why I mean, there's a reason he's going around and going to those conservative women and all that stuff where the lady walked out and just basic things i mean it's incredible i mean just the whole thing it was yeah it was really joyful i think it's a good commentary on everything like brandon and i were saying it's like multiple levels like on the surface level you would say like one of the scenes in the movie is that the pandemic hits and borat is running around in the streets and he comes across this guy who's like sort of the typical right-wing bearded uh carhartt baseball hat camouflage wearing pickup truck driving guy and the guy of course is nice enough to like let him come into his house and so the commentary there at the surface level, of course, is that he's like making fun of this person. But the, of course, if you know, if you're not a total jerk off, you also recognize that like, oh, this person was nice enough to take yeah. him in. And then he goes into the house and his this good old boy's friend is there. And it just goes from there. And I am not going to give too much away if you haven't seen it. But nonetheless, it's a hilarious um, set of scenes in in that that segment of the movie. And yeah, I mean, they all like. You know, they also help him find his daughter. Contradictions. So it's like there's all these contradictions yeah. throughout the movie. And I that's obviously what makes it so interesting. And how people overlook those contradictions yep. uh, is beyond me. But fortunately, the overwhelming <laughs> response is that people love the film and that it's like number one in the world. And, yep. <laughs> you know, to the degree that movies have an impact uh, anymore or that people haven't already made their minds up, I would say it, you know probably has a good chance of getting Biden many thousands more votes because it's definitely a damning, pretty damning indictment of yeah. the Trump administration's response mm -hmm. to COVID. And they've got Pence and Trump in there making like just ridiculous statements from earlier in the year about how COVID is no big deal and it's going to go away. And <laughs> of course now when everybody's watching this, there's a quarter million people dead. So yeah. Yeah, I thought it was great. Please do yourself a favor and watch it. Definitely watch it. <laughs> we'll watch it again. <laughs> And it's then, of course, laughing. the reaction to it gets to a, another podcast that we, or I'm sorry, another documentary that we watched no on Amazon, spaces. No Safe Spaces, I think was the name of it. Yeah, okay. No Safe Spaces. No Safe Spaces. So, okay, right off the bat, yes, there's some right-wing blowhards in the documentary right off the bat. Yes, many of them are uh, hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? Because many of them have either played a significant role in getting professors fired or tossed off campuses for uh, critical views of Israel. Yep. So, you know, the Dershowitzes and so on who are featured in this movie are just, you know, they're totally full of shit and it's a shame that they put them in there. But this is the, the terrible contradiction of what's happening right now is that you have so many people on the left who have bought into this cancel culture shit yep. and it has seeped into uh, the professional liberal class so much that it has just totally warped the entire left culture uh, that we have. It's warped the pop culture that we have in this country, which is even scarier. <clears throat> As a response, the people speaking out about free speech, the people speaking out about safe spaces and trigger warnings and all this crazy shit that the left 
the you know goofy factions within the left and largely on university campuses, I should say, came up with um, is right wingers. You know, these are the people who are you know and liberals, like really staunch liberals. Um, so, and I mean that in the classical sense too. You know, small L liberal and large L liberals who are uh, defending free speech right now. And I, you know, we've long talked about this. You and I have warned about this on the left since at least 2012, 2013, long before the Evergreen incident with Brett Weinstein. Well, it started 2011, especially during, uh, I think it was more visible when we had a convention here in Chicago that we organized. That was 2013. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah, it was 2013. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's been about seven years, about seven, eight years that we've seen this and we've been speaking out about it. And it got us into trouble with national organizations that we were once members of. It's gotten us into trouble with various institutional it was powers used against us too. on the left. Yeah, and it was used against us. And instead of sort of running away from the left or denouncing it because I do believe in the basic political project of, you know, coming up with an alternative to capitalism and finding ways to uh, live in more egalitarian fashion, more col- a little more collectivity, um, making sure people have health care, making sure private interests aren't allowed to just plunder the earth, all that kind of stuff that the left is worried about. You know, those are things that I care about. So, just because there's a bunch of shitheads on the left doesn't mean that I'm going to give up my ideals or principles. So, in any case, I don't mean to go on some kind of diatribe, but the documentary is worth watching. Um, I would say 50% of it is on the money. 50% of it is probably just total bullshit, yep. right-wing propaganda. They try to... They're neoliberal. Yeah, they try to mix in all the Horatio Alger, like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And And no systemic analysis, basically. There's no... Yeah, it's very individual and very self-responsibility. And um, But... Yeah. Otherwise, no. I mean, it's... uh, But people should check it out. And the reason people should check it out is because, you know, we have a... We actually do have an issue. uh, And that issue is that what people think of is the dominant left and... You know, in mainstream culture, people lump liberals, progressives, and communists, socialists, anarchists into one group. Yep. So in case you haven't noticed, and I say this to both camps, both my liberal friends and my leftist friends, I mean, the right doesn't give a fuck mm-hmm. which one you are. They hate you and they want you dead, uh, some of them at least. And um, it would be wise for you to, I think... Uh, see your interests as being united and i also think that it would be wise for people to take up the mantle of free speech on the left again uh and not and and, you know i know this tradition varies in different countries because when i was in australia they don't they don't have free speech laws there and they don't have a constitution and a bill of rights in the way that we do and so it was hard for them to understand what i meant because they actually do have laws about uh, hate Correct. speech and things like yeah. this, and, and we don't. And, yeah, I found myself obviously in a very isolated position there uh, debating with people on the left because people on the left wanted to curtail free speech rights in the aim of protecting people from feeling bad about things that people say. And, of course, there's limits on speech here, too, but it's not hate speech. Here, the only limits on speech is you can't incite a riot, you can't incite violence, and you can't incite, um, you know, like falsely claim that there's a fire or something like that. I forget how the the official wording is. But those are, like, the three things you can't do. 
Well, and it's <clears throat> my main point would be also is that if you know if the left feels like we don't, I mean, let me. How would I say it even better? I think we just have to take a responsibility and be like, okay, we need, if there are forces that we disagree with, we need to find ways and means of countering those arguments and conversations. So whether it's conversations, debates, specific, whatever, whatever it has to be, one, um, that's extremely important. Second point, democracy and ever-evolving mechanism. There's like no definitive democracy like it's it's an evolving and i think people have to understand it and i sometimes i feel i see and maybe i even probably felt it myself before getting really involved and kind of getting into more information that there's like a specific certain ending definitive meaning of what democracy is and freedom of speech as well so i mean especially freedom of speech and that's you know it's something i always think about and i tell people specifically in the immigrant diaspora communities is that whether you know i mean obviously each system has its faults and different things that need to be fixed by the people but coming here like i wouldn't i mean basic things like that like i was talking to my mom a couple days ago i wouldn't be able to say things that i've been saying for past we've been saying for past 15 years even in ukraine like you would probably just get popped or you end up in the car accident, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, it's, it's really important to utilize it and see it, utilize it and, you know, understand that it's an ever evolving thing that we have to fight for and constantly. And even if it means going, um, you know, even going against the mainstream wave of specific group that you're part of, like the left, you know, I mean, certain parts that do push, uh, that type of uh, safe spaces and you know you know yeah so it's just uh yeah i think people have to um, understand democracy as like this ever-evolving thing that we have to fight for and constantly be aware of different forces and that's going to and it went from uh political institutions and uh, i mean uh, social movements and the universities and then is spread is specifically now at the main uh, mainstream Jesus uh, social media, and this is where it's finding like it's it's really able to dictate our speech and dictate um, what people can say, what can't say, what they can do, what they cannot do, and uh, yeah, I think it's it's spreading everywhere, and I think we have to be extremely cautious of it, but also not fall into this hyper or neoconservative. Um, approach to it like in that film yeah well the 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 way that'll happen is if uh people who aren't hyper conservative people speak up about the issue so you know the only way to combat it is if people speak up and if people speak loudly about you know free speech what it means why it's important and uh, people should start doing that uh, more and more because it's going to be used against us in ways that people can't possibly imagine right now. And at that point, there won't be much people can do about it. So I think it's extremely important. And I think it's also extremely important for people to develop their own cultural means because if you rely on pop culture and if pop culture is uh, dominated by this type of thinking, um, which it is, and even more and more so by the day, then you're going to need individual, uh, independent 
forms of media and culture that can counter that. So that, that gets right back to, you know, making your own movies, developing your own books and literature, art, music, all that stuff. So you have an alternative to plug people into and hopefully to encourage them to create their own culture and all that stuff. But yeah, I, I really, really hate the fact that this is like the only, I mean, it sucks that you have, two fucking dorks like Adam Carolla <laughs> and whatever the other guy is name is Dennett Hat. No, that's an old, I can't remember his name. Dennis Prager, I think from Prager university or whatever <laughs> racket this guy started. But yeah, it's terrible. It's just like these two guys are the going to hold up the mantle of free speech. I mean, and then you, you know, there were a couple of progressive leftists in the, uh, in the documentary, including Cornell, Cornell. West, you know, and, there's uh, him and see that's the thing is like as much as as much as stuff needs to grow and change it it's like with it's like the bernie phenomena everybody gave bernie shit for being old but it was like he's one of the oldest guys in the senate he's one of the oldest guys elected to office in the u.s (laughs) but he's got like some of the best ideas so it's like not just because something's young or new is it good inherently and i keep thinking the same thing with uh, free speech. So the counter to, I do agree with you. I mean, democracy is and it's an ideal. It's not a set program or something. I don't, that's something we should talk more about. But the opposite angle of that is like, I don't know how much our concepts of free speech should evolve. I mean, in other words, I kind of think that sometimes we do have things nailed. You know, it's like sometimes people do uh, develop something and there's not much more you can do to develop that I, that concept. Now, obviously, um, we have to think about, there are new things today. Okay, so social media. So how should we govern that? It, we agree it should be a public entity. Well, that's, a, that's actually something to mention about the documentary. They don't say it. But they do sort of allude to the fact that this that social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook should be publicly owned, that they're private entities and this is a problem because they serve a public function. Implicitly. <laughs> so I mean it might I mean that might be one of those issues where you get some overlap from the right and the left. And if the right can do a good enough job and if the left can do a good enough job of pressuring their senators. I think the House members will be easy on this one, but the senators have much more of those institutional connections to those large corporations um, outside of the, obviously, the House members who are in districts where those corporations operate. Um, But that's limited in the U.S. So it's like, yeah, you might get a challenge in the Senate, but if you get people from the left and the right who can pressure their people and be like, look, we want to make these things a public utility, I think that would be one of the greatest fights to have, and it's over a a real issue. It's over an important issue. And one that everybody should care about. But that's something actually positive that I would take away from the movie is that they do, you know, sort of allude to that idea. And they make the critique, which is, that's good. You know, it's better than than if they said the opposite. So that's, you know, something to think about. I mean, obviously Elizabeth Warren seemed to be the most coherent on this issue. You know, there's people who spoke to it in sort of a principled, moral way. But Warren seemed to be the only one who had like a really clear idea of exactly what that legislation would look like and how it would function and, you know, how it would pr- how the whole process would go along. Uh, but, yeah, we should I think that's one of the first things we should be talking about, because it is dangerous that these entities have the power that they have. 
they should be governed by the same rules that any kind of, you know, they, you should be able the the bill of rights should matter in a public forum. That is a public forum. And, you know, on the other hand, there's going to be a lot of sophisticated technology that obviously needs to be developed. And it's much more strict now as you're finding out because you're in Facebook jail 30 days, but it's, uh, you know, it, it is not, it is no longer the wild west. I mean, I remember back in during the, uh, war in Libya, the war, the coup, whatever you want to call it. Um, the pictures that were being floated around at that time would not be allowed to be floated around, nor would the uh, banter back and forth. So that was, of course, when Benghazi happened and all the rest. And when that happened, there were people just like posting like, you know, all these right wingers are like Barack Obama should hang and we should assassinate him. I mean, I people... I think have short memories and I do think people forget that no less than seven, eight years ago, no less than three, four, five, six years ago, you know, the, the social media was really the wild west and people said whatever the hell they wanted. So it's probably good that that's being regulated to some degree. I don't think that everybody threatening each other with violence and these types of things are, uh, are, um, good. But I also, think that the best way to counter this stuff isn't through official policy as much as it is through people collectively sort of holding each other accountable and being like, hey, that's not cool. Don't speak like that. And like any other form of peer pressure, I just think it works. And I think in any context it matters and people don't want to be on the outside and people don't want to be shunned by their peers. And if you're saying stupid shit and people just kind of say, hey, Vince or Sergio, you know, you really, this stuff is not cool. And you know, whatever. It makes a difference. No, it is. And I was actually, after that film, I was thinking about uh, Belarus, what's going on right now. And the interesting, and like, this is where the power of freedom of speech kind of presented well, because if you look at that country, it has one of the lowest uh, income inequalities. It has, a lot of their things are public, public institutions. And it's just, they, in terms of economy and the infrastructure, they're like one of the top ones in the world. They're like in the top, yeah, top 40, top 30 countries. But people want, want to be able to speak, you know. They want to voice their concerns. They want to voice their whatever. Yeah. And, you know, people have been there in the streets for months now. And I think it's important, like it's really important to consider those things and understand that. You know, there are a lot of people around the world that, you know, striving for this and we have it here. And for us, it's basically to retain it and maintain it. And for other people, they're up the hill. You know, we're on the hill like it's it's just trying to stay on the hill. People are trying to climb up the hill. And, you know, I think it's uh, it's definitely something for for all of us to think about. Well, it gets back to the left in this country just not being nuanced about much. And so then, you know, there's a there's just a view that everything the United States is and does is terrible and bad. And there's nothing redeeming about, um, you know, the United States. And that's not it's not helpful, not only domestically, but it's not helpful also to understand the global context. Yep. It's not it's just not and rejective, it's, you know, highly rejective of everything. Yeah extremely that's been it's, it's been like a big silly. theme yeah it's 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 not really helpful but nonetheless check it out see yeah. see what you think you can uh i'm sure uh 
decide for yourself. And, uh, you know, we also watched, uh, what else did we watch? We watched uh, Tales, from, Tales the Hood, from the Hood, which was fucking badass. Wow. wow. Sergio had never seen it before. Um, the wow. first time that I saw it, my dad took me to the theater in fifth grade uh, to watch it. And it, I don't think it was what he thought it was going to be. He's not a big fan of horror films, which is even better. Nor is he the biggest fan of hip-hop culture, which makes it even that much better. So it's both of those things in one movie. But um, it's a pure 90s horror anthology produced by Spike Lee and some of the guys who did Menace to Society. And I think it's four stories. Well, three and a half, basically. There's like a story within a story. So there's like three three or four stories, you could say. Um, but they're... It's just, it's so good. And I love, I, I love the fact that he's trying to bring out the sense of agency that people have to take in a lot of his films, a lot of this thing. Yeah, it's not simple. It's not, it's not the, that's why I, I had posted it to social media and I was like, this is more woke than anything that's come out since. And the reason I said that was because it not only makes an institutional critique of white supremacy and patriarchy and you know, capitalism and materialism and, um, you know, the history of slavery and all these different things. But it also really critiques uh, the actors within it, to, to your point, Serge, that, yeah, who have a choice uh, of either enabling these forms of oppression and repression or taking a stand. And it, the films really treat the middleman uh, worse than anyone. So, you know, most of the protagonists in the movie are black. Excuse me, a lot of their antagonists in the movie are white, except for in a couple different scenarios. And so there's, you know, just to be clear for those who haven't seen it, the opening one is um, a black police officer who's with a, white, a group of white police officers and they pull over a black city councilman uh, and activist and they go from there um, and the black police officer of course doesn't take action and he suffers because of it and then you know the second time is like uh, a kid getting abused and you know the the father is the abuser and the father's beating uh, the mother and the child and they're there. It's not so much enabling, although, you know, they don't blame the mother at all. But there is this teacher who's there who just is the only just one like push over. But the only one who recognized he it. was the only one who recognized it. Yeah, he recognized the bruises. And then he like kind of spoke up and did tried to do something. And he did try to fight him when he came to the house, but he just got beat up. But yeah. he uh, but yeah, then there's another one with uh uh, my favorite one, which is a governor race, yeah, or? a gubernatorial race, and the white racist politician is being advised by a one of his top advisors is a black guy, and of course it doesn't treat him well. So it's like the movie's not only showing you like all these things about white supremacy in America, but they're also showing you like in order for white supremacy to function. It needs black pe yep. enough black people to buy into exactly. that in order to act as a middleman between the white supremacists and the black community. And so in that way, in my opinion, it is much more woke than a lot of yeah, the things wow. that are out there yeah, today. Right. It was amazing. <laughs> I'm so I knew you amazing. would like it. I knew you were gonna like it. Um, it was amazing. Yeah. What else did, well we I mean, speaking of movies, we don't have to go too much into this, but I will say uh 
for those listening, definitely check out on two of the documentaries that Sergio watched. Sergio and I watched over the last week or so was one was called um, Heart of Darkness, which is available on Amazon. And it's a uh, it's about an hour and a half, two hour documentary about the making of Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola's film. I'm one of Sergio and I's favorite of all times, but uh, of all time, of old times. <laughs> um, but yeah, make sure to check out Heart of Darkness, excellent documentary about one of the most important films ever made in this country. And check out Friedkin Uncut. That's Friedkin, F-R-I-E-D-K-I-N, as in William Friedkin, the director, Uncut. Uh, it's about a Chicago director, Hollywood director, one of my favorite of all time. Uh, my dad turned me on to him cause he made the movie, uh, Sorcerer in, in my garage at the house where I grew up. My dad had a poster of Sorcerer on the wall <laughs> and would tell us how this is his favorite movie of all time. Well, one of them, I probably say it's one of his top three. And uh, Friedkin also did To Live and Die in L.A. He also did Cruising with Al Pacino. He also did The Exorcist with Linda Blair. He also did Sorcerer. Um, I'm forgetting one in there. But nonetheless, check out William Friedkin's work. It's just un- unbelievable stuff. Um, the French Connection with Gene Hackman. So, yeah, French Connection, Exorcist, Sorcerer, To Live and Die in L.A., just uh, Cruising, just some fucking phenomenal movies he's he's amazing but yeah check out friedman friedkin uncut and then the last thing i know we wanted to rap about was um ufc 254 oh yeah we uh so well we could also anything else that comes yeah. up but um habib Nurmagomedov versus justin Gaethje a monster for the lightweight championship ufc lightweight championship of the world <sighs> Habib beat Justin Gaethje in the second round via a triangle choke, but it started from the mounted position, which made it even that much more special. And then he pulled guard and wrapped it up. But even dominated him on the feet. Yeah, even dominated him on the feet. And I just, I, I know most of the people who are listening to these podcasts are probably not fight fans, though that will change, I think, because I'm going to start trying to interview. Uh, not only some MMA journalists, but I think there'll be a way to interview some MMA fighters, which would be interesting. And so we're going to have them on and expand some of what we're doing. And, you know, in terms of the guests and the content, and, you know, I've been watching the sport pretty religiously for the last six, seven years and have been a fan of it for a while, but, but always, I was always turned off by it. Because of the culture, a lot of the broish culture that comes along with it, a lot of goofy conspiratorial right wing types that, you know, Luke Thomas, the MMA journalist, speaks to this. But regardless, as a fight fan, as a fan of the sport, as a fan of big drama, <laughs> it was unfucking believable. The whole lead up to the fight, the story of Habib, where he comes from in Dagestan, the relationship with his father, the fact that his father had just passed away from COVID, and then coming into the fight 28-0, fighting in Abu Dhabi, where he has a devout Muslim fan base, and winning in an impressive fashion in the second round and dominating one of the best lightweights in the world, and then he retires after the fight. He doesn't want his mom asked him not to fight there without his father. Yeah. And I, uh, I have a hard time. People are questioning it, but I was like, if I know his ethnic roots well enough, and if I know his religious, uh, 
commitments, I highly doubt that he's going to break his word to his mom and come back and fight, unless his mom gives him the okay. Or unless uh, she's really concerned that he's going to catch COVID because of this. And maybe when the COVID is over, maybe she'll feel a little bit better about it, you know? Because, I mean, she doesn't want to lose her son from COVID. Obviously, fighting as well. I mean, there's always... She's not worried about that, though, because nobody's yeah, going to kill yeah, Khabib. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody's killing Habib. Yeah. But, yeah, what a – I just was – I yeah, it was it was impressive, and I, f- I felt good for the guy. I'm always happy to see people who have been through a lot of stuff to, you know, as you, I think you used the metaphor earlier, but to make it to the mountaintop is uh, – it's really – it's something special. And he's a very – he's a he's the antithesis – of everything that the flashy sort of American or, you know, slash European, slash, I mean, there's plenty of Latino, uh, flashy Latino fighters as well. But there's not too many flashy Asian fighters. There's, there's, It's weird how you can kind of hop around the globe and see these different sort of demeanors that these fighters have. But he's the antithesis of somebody like Conor McGregor. And so what's interesting about a guy like Habib is in a world of, you know, superficiality and materialism and uh, sex and drugs and all. I mean, again, some of those things I, I enjoy. It's not like I'm not superficial or materialistic at times, but it is refreshing to see someone who breaks that mold and is so different, and he's this very committed Muslim. Highly disciplined. High, yeah, highly disciplined uh, family man, stays away from the camera, lives a private life. It's 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 cool. It's really cool. And you grew up in the rough. <clears throat> I mean, that's a rough place. I mean, the conflict there is is an ongoing thing. The contribution to the this incorporation of these tribes, tribal uh, societies into very structured um, communist sphere, and that created a lot of conflict in those regions. And then, obviously, a large amount of people from Crimea, where I was born, were deported. Um, in the 40s after World War II to those areas. And so like this weird intermixing and then intermixing different uh, Russian ethnics who were uh, working there. And so, yeah, I mean, that's it's always been very intense area. Yeah, I remember, I think I told you this story when we were watching the fight, but I remember um, an interview or, I don't know if it was an interview or a press conference where somebody was talking shit to Habib and I remember him saying, you know, I didn't grow up where you grew up. And this guy was like, I grew up in a tough neighborhood. And Habib was like, he's like, no, 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 brother. He's like, you don't understand. <laughs> like, he just, he's like, no, you don't. Like, when I say tough neighborhood, I don't mean that, like, somebody might shoot it out on your block. I mean, like, your fucking house might get shelled. And there might be, like, patrolling armies that come through your village or your town and, like, ransack your house and take people you know captive and torture people and... You know, that, that, that we don't have to go into all of it, but I mean, you know, it's like food shortages. Yeah, shortages it's a totally stuff. different. I mean, water shortages, uh, infrastructure that doesn't yeah. work, electrical grids that are out, you know, hospitals that aren't set up, uh, people having kids at home. I mean, yeah. yes, that happens in parts of the United States. It does not happen at the scale or uh, disproportionately in the way that it happens other parts of the world. And I think that's hard for people to. Uh, wrap their minds around and I think sometimes in people's pursuit to make a critique of the United States 
sometimes in people's pursuit to correctly point out how many people live in poverty in the United States. I think we sometimes make that mistake of, you know, saying things like, oh, the poverty in Alabama is uh, as bad as it is anywhere else in the world. And it's like, well, okay, for some families, it's true that, that they're, if you look only at certain indicators, like do they have X amount of calories, some things like this, but if you add some of these other factors, like do they have X amount of calories and is there a chance that their house might get bombed next week? It's like, well, no, you know what I mean? (laughs) And they have, they can only eat a a 500 calories or a thousand calories a day and they might have to be refugees for the next six years. No, I mean, so Anyway, I don't want to go too into that because there's no reason to play the oppression Olympics, but I do think it's important. And when I think of somebody like Habib, it it shows. It's just this person's cut from a different cloth. They have a different background. They, you know, and I I respect I tremendously respect the guy and I I really wish him the best because I yeah, I actually hope he does stay retired unless he comes out and fights GSP, but other than that. And you know, I mean one the only one positive, well, not only one positive, but one positive thing out of the Soviet Union that came up there, even in relation to him, is the huge, huge funding for uh, social programs, gyms. Even though when the Soviet Union collapsed, all those cats who were in the gyms uh, joined the mafia in different uh, groups to make a living because all the funding was cut. But yeah. nonetheless, like, it's 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 a very cultural thing. And they still have those things. And now you might have to pay it, you know, just to maintain and, you know, for salaries. But general, that's, you know, it's a very cultural thing of having these social places, all kinds of social programs and, and institutions. Dude, and it's the perfect antidote yep. to the gun culture. I mean, this is the thing is, like, if you want to get these kids – it's tough because in okay in this in one way yes it's true you do play into some level of like hyper masculinity to some degree so if you take a community of impoverished people uh who are shooting each other with guns because they're in poverty and they're desperate and you know they're killing each other over petty drugs and gang violence and all this other shit it is true that if you just throw down a bunch of boxing gyms and MMA gyms that you're also going to have a bunch of people who probably don't have the emotional capacity to process their or the capacity to process their emotions so they're not just like beating each other up then you know so, so in other words does it switch from just guns to people then just fighting all the time it's true that martial arts brings a sense of discipline to you but it's not enough i know plenty of people who have been into martial arts who are also fucking totally crazy and they like to get into bar fights and all that shit then it gets back to what is your community atmosphere what's your family structure like what's your social network of friends like do they support that kind of behavior and all the rest so i do think it's deeper all that said I think one of the most positive things we could do in communities where there's a ton of gun violence is to put mma gyms in there uh, to get that energy out to also level the playing field in terms of people's aggression. So it's like, okay, if Sergio and I have a beef with each other, let's not. So there's two things that happen. One is you can handle that beef without somebody getting killed. And the second thing that's, that happens is unlike that beef taking place in the streets, meaning you meet someone in a parking lot or outside of a party or a bar or wherever the fuck and you throw down with them, that could lead to an embarrassing situation 
where you humiliate the person or that person humiliates you in a public space, which then causes you to want to go home and commit even more violence. Well, in the controlled setting of a gym, number one, it's safe. No one's going to get killed. I mean, there's always a chance somebody can get killed having a fight, so I can't say that. But there's, the chances of you getting killed are cut by like 99%. The as opposed to you shooting it out with someone you have a beef with. And then the second thing is, in a controlled environment like a gym, even the person who wins, the point is not that you're going to embarrass that other person. It's that you might have won this fight, but you know there's somebody else in the gym that can beat you, so you always stay humble. And then the point is is just to get this person to learn or maybe they they had a legitimate beef and they just got beaten. So you know what I'm saying? And though, you there's hug a, afterwards if when you're that's in what a I'm controlled saying. environment. That's what I'm saying. That's, like you hug afterwards. Like nobody's going to go home and be like, okay, well, I'm getting a gun <laughs> yep. now and I'm going to come back and do this to you because you embarrassed me in front of all these people in public. It's like, oh, I lost this fight. Oh, and that guy's picking me up to hug me. Oh, and everybody else in the gym is supportive and, you know, talking to me after practice and like trying to help me get better or whatever. It's just such a different environment. But you also can deal with some of that petty shit that people, you know, just need to get out. And I think there's there's just something that exists in left culture, progressive culture, where people don't think these things are going to happen or they want to pretend as if they're not going to happen if we just talk nicely about them. Instead of just dealing with the reality as it is and being like, okay, Men, unfortunately, are going to scrap with each other. And so instead of doing that on the street or instead of doing it with weapons and killing a bunch of innocent people, let's give people venues that not only allow them to get that out in a more productive way, but might actually teach them some extra skills along the way, make them a better person, create better bonds, so on and so on. You can't escape a biological curse, too. You know, what do testosterone. You Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those things. I mean, that's that, yeah, yeah. Let's you know, let's be real about it, and that's what it is. Yeah, no, that's another thing. We won't get into it today because there's not enough time. Well, there is, I guess, all the time in the world with COVID, <laughs> but that you don't want to hear us rap about this for another hour. But yeah, we do need to have more people on the program from the natural sciences, which is something that people from the left really get yeah. away from. And I think you know, the more people hear from really thoughtful biologists and evolutionary biologists and anthropologists and other people well i'm sorry not anthropologists um ecologists was the word i was looking for it gives people a different perspective um so i mean how many people pay attention in their biology or chemistry class yeah no not too many not too many people. exactly you know so you're like you miss out kind of on the basics of certain things but like evolutionary biologists right away like there's a good one uh that brett weinstein who's in the um, safe space documentary, the gentleman who was ran out of uh, Evergreen. Evergreen State. I'm actually going to have. I, I definitely want to get a hold of him. I want to have him on the on the program. But his wife Heather, they have a podcast called the called the Dark Horse Podcast. And shit, I forgot where I was going with this. Jesus Christ. Uh, about biology, evolutionary She's biology. an evolutionary biologist, and to listen to her talk about evolutionary biology is really interesting. And she, you know, consists, and she's liberal, you know what I mean? So it's another one of these things where it's like she's not some crazy right-winger. Like, she's actually progressive liberal person, So, but she's taking an unorthodox view in terms of what the common discourse is now on the left. Or in, again, even in pop culture, like, 
that there's no differences between men, people who are born biologically as men and people who are born biologically as women, and that every bit of us is a social construct is really, really dangerous. And it's it's basic, I mean, in the rap, like, it's Trumpism. I mean, literally, yeah. basically anti-fucking-intellectual yeah. and anti-science. Like, this is what it is. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, whether you're left or right or center or whatever, like, it, no, it's completely crazy and it's really dangerous and it's trumpism well this is going to get into a whole nother thread of things that we will talk about in future programs uh, because it's an important strain of thought and that is the left and biology and science and the strains of anti-counter enlightenment that infect the left all right but that's probably enough for us today what else you got anything else the only thing I got left, because I know it's it's happening, even though I've been watching with uh, Amy Barrett, I just I just want to tell people like this is how you fight. You gotta we gotta fight. We gotta fight like the conservatives. Like they go all the way in, they use everything they got, and they just go after it, no matter what the social con- contract they might have. So I mean, it's obviously extremely bad news, but uh, like I post, I just posted to Facebook, man. You know, Jane McLevy had a uh, video that she put out like last year and she was just like, look, like you got three approaches to organizing in the U.S. You got courts, you've got the electoral system and you got workplace organizing. And she's like, the courts are done. She's like, and she was making this video after Kavanaugh got, you know, uh, confirmed. And she was just like, forget about lawsuits. We're going to lose every time in the courts. The courts are done. She's like, so this gets back to like focus on the electoral, focus on workplace organizing focus on communities and social movements and stuff like that because otherwise you know there's no hope for the courts they were probably done once trump got elected knowing he was going to appoint two or three and now that it's over with you know i agree with her so absolutely but yeah anyway we'll talk to y'all soon soon bye